Welcome to the East Asia Hotspots podcast, where we invite you to join us for chats with experts and scholars from around the world to talk about contemporary issues in East Asia. I'm the lead facilitator, Richard Haddock, with the George Washington University. Support of this podcast comes from the U.S. Department of Education's Title VI grant for East Asian Studies at the George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs. Our partners at the Elliott School that help make this podcast happen are the Seeger Center for Asian Studies and the GW Institute for Korean Studies. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of the speakers alone and do not reflect the position of the NRC. Through these podcasts, we want to encourage dialogue about diverse perspectives in East Asian studies. Check out our website at nrc.elliot.gwu.edu for all our podcast episodes and info about East Asian studies at the George Washington University. Now, let's start the conversation. Welcome to our listeners. Thank you so much for joining us for another installment of our East Asia Hotspots podcast. Richard Haddock here, Program Associate with the GW East Asia National Resource Center. And I am joined here today by our distinguished guest, Professor Yue Ho, who is the Janice and Julian Bears Assistant Professor in the Social Sciences in the Department of Political Science at the University of Pennsylvania. Her substantive research interests include authoritarian institutions, business state relations, the political economy of development, and ethnic politics, with a regional focus on China. Her book, The Private Sector in Public Office, Selective Property Rights in China, examines strategies Chinese private entrepreneurs use to protect property from expropriation. In 2015 to 16, she was a postdoctoral fellow at Penn Center for the Study of Contemporary China. She received her PhD in political science from MIT and her BA in economics and mathematics from Grinnell College. Professor Ho, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Richard. So let's jump right into it. Uh, This episode will focus on your latest piece co-authored with scholars Xin Feng and Mingxing Liu titled Underrepresented Outperformers, Female Legislators in the Chinese Congress. Now, this article explores the performance of female legislators in China's National People's Congress with regards to gender, affiliation or not with the Chinese Communist Party and other related dimensions. What inspired or motivated you to explore this important topic? Uh, Well, I'm glad we're starting with motivations here because I do have a story to tell that didn't make it to the paper. So when I was doing research for my dissertation, which later becomes my first book, I met quite a number of subnational legislators or to be more specific, local people's Congress deputies in China who were also private entrepreneurs. So in that case, most of the uh, interview that I did happened in their offices but there were one legislator who no longer had an office space in her district because her company was relocated to another city. So she proposed that she met up with me at a coffee shop. And I showed up at the coffee shop, she was already there, and she was working on the legislative proposal. Again, at the time, she was working in a different city, but because she was still serving the local Congress at the other location, she had to fly back once a month or so to attend meetings, to see government officials, all at her own expenses. By the way, uh, I should mention that most of the local and national legislators are part-time. 
So this woman was a businesswoman. Um, well, I did meet many other legislators, both men and women, who were very serious about their job as a policymaker. But this particular female legislator left a strong impression in me. And later, you know, I I I continue to curious, wonder about whether there are any differences between female and male legislators in China. My dissertation didn't end up focusing on gender, so I, I decided to come back to it. And in the paper you just mentioned, we are focusing on legislators' performance at the national level, comparing male and female legislators instead of at the local level, which I studied in my book, mostly because we have better data at the national level. So looking at the main topic of underrepresented outperformers, in a broad context, what is the role of the National People's Congress in China's governance? And are there any key parallels or differences you see between the NPC and other legislative bodies in, let's say, democracies? Right. So NPC is China's national legislature. As you said, uh, its members exercise state power by passing laws and regulations, as well as supervising the national government, the appointment and you know, dismissing government officials at a national level. And there are local level people's Congress that are in charge of local affairs and local policy making. I would say the key difference between the National People's Congress in China and other legislative bodies in the Western or democratic context is that there is no partisan politics in the Chinese context. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party, uh, or CCP for short, they monopolize political power in China and set the agenda. And legislators are not elected by the population, but they are, uh, quote unquote, selected. One thing I'd like to point out is that the People's Congress is not a rubber stamp institution, as some observers might argue. Uh, legislators in China actually provide a valuable platform that allows some interest representation and interest articulation. For example, a bill has to go through an interagency consensus building phase and later a, le a leadership review phase before it could move to the floor for voting. And in the process, um, you could see that various agencies um, who that have their own interests and individuals from different agencies and backgrounds, they are building coalitions in the process to advance their own policy agendas uh, in the process. And I guess we can come back to it when we talk about collaborations among legislators. And another question about the NPC and its composition. So while the Chinese Communist Party or CCP holds a monopoly over political power, I don't believe it's the case that they're the only party represented in the NPC. Is that true? And what are the other parties, if at all, involved? Right. So besides uh, CCP, there are a number of uh, democratic satellite parties. You know, they represent sectors, uh, for example, that are, I guess, you know, elite, educational elite are likely to congregate in one party and agricultural interests are are represented in another democratic party. And uh, later in the paper, we're looking at how democratic parties' uh, interests and uh, individuals are represented in, in the National People's Congress. That said, um, CCP is setting up the agenda. If a democratic party's proposal uh, was inconsistent with CCP's interest, we wouldn't see a bill that's proposed by a Democratic Party's candidate eventually make it to the voting stage. That process is more difficult to observe because in the data that we have, we can only observe what 
results that already passed the first uh, few phases. That is, we only see bills that already are vetted. So we wouldn't actually get to see the whole universe of legislative bills or proposals that could be coming from different uh, different parties. So that would be a limitation of, uh, of this data set. I see. And I bring that up too, as we'll discuss later on, how uh, non-CCP parties are factored into uh, your studies on performance of legislators. But before going into that specifically, I also wanted to chat about what are the major historical trends and events with regards to female participation in Chinese politics and society? And where does the CCP and the NPC fit in this broader context? Uh, How would you broadly characterize female participation in either the CCP or NPC? Yeah, so as we know, uh, China is a socialist country, and one important finding in the broader gender literature is that women in socialist contexts seem to be doing better than their counterparts in a capitalist country, especially in the field of science, engineering, medicine, and other economic sectors. The People's Republic of China grew out of communist revolution, uh, where quite a number of female revolutionaries are still revered um, in the public discourse. And uh, in CCP's political agenda, women's work has always been an essential part of its agenda. Uh, when we think about the earlier days in 1954, China passed its first ever constitution and the constitution grants equal right to men and women. And uh, Mao, the chairman Mao, who was the first leader of, uh, of the People's Republic of China famously proclaimed that women hold up half the sky. That was in 1955. You know, that was actually a pretty big deal. It was the first time that, uh, you know, women's rights are formally recognized in the state. And that definitely gave hope to millions of Chinese women uh, that they would have a say in a new China. Uh, so let's fast forward to today's China. Well, men are still dominant in politics and, and in you know, most of the other uh, fields. Um, in terms of politics, China's most important political body is uh, the Politburo Standing Committee. And that's the highest uh, power of, of Chinese uh, politics. There we see no female politicians has ever made it. And one level below, which is the 25-member Politburo, uh, the highest number of female uh, representation was two. So that happened in 2012, where two female has made it, have made, have made it, but now the number uh, is down to one. So that was that's only one in twenty-five uh, most powerful politicians. Okay, when you look at provincial leaders, the number were a little better, are a little better, but still not very good. Fewer than ten percent of provincial leaders are women, and the percentages are a little higher when we look at sub-provincial level, but uh, they're nowhere near gender parity. And back to the MPC, that's the focus of, uh, of this paper. Women have consistently held up more than one-fifth of all seats there, even before MPC formally installed a gender quota of 22%. Uh, that was in 2008. Uh, so, Richard, you asked about you know, other trends. I guess I would like to also bring up uh, female labor force participating participation data in China. So on that front, China has been doing really well. And uh, I searched for data, and the most recent data I could find was from 2010. Uh, so in 2010, Chinese women's labor force participation was 68%. And that number is actually much higher than, you know, even 
most of the Western democracies, such as the U.S., uh, whose number is about 59, and Germany was at 52. And if you compare, you know, other Asian countries, Japan was at 48, and India was at 29. So there you can see that Chinese women are really participating a lot in the labor market. And I perhaps want to mention one more trend in the society that is, um, you know, in the civil society where in China we observe a very vibrant Me Too movement uh, starting around two, three years ago, maybe 2018. And there have been a few quite high profile Me Too court cases uh, that have gained national attention. The most famous case was this brave young woman named Xianzi, who accused a national TV star of sexual harassment when she was an intern at his television station. Well, this case is still pending, but she has already become an important figure in the movement who encouraged more women to speak up. Uh, I know that many of my female friends are energized by her. I am very energized by her. Well, she's, I think she's fighting a really good fight, and maybe a TV show should be made somewhere in the future. But let me end uh, this comment on uh, on the legal front. In 2020, China passed its first legal code, uh, excuse me, first civil code, uh, which expanded the definition of sexual harassment. So our data only covers the 12th National People's Congress, which was between 2013 and 2017. So it predates the Me Too movement. But based on our observations, it seems to be the case that policymakers are responding to public sentiments um, in China. So we're going to continue uh, observing what's going on between public opinion and the legislation. That's all super encouraging to hear. Uh, I'm wondering, what are your thoughts on some of the organizational or individual drivers for some of these trends? For instance, in the paper, you bring up mass organizations such as the All China Women's Federation. And so if you had thoughts on how organizations like the Women's Federation or others are moving the needle on this discourse in China. Yes. So Women's Federation is a very important state affiliated organization. And uh, you can say that it's uh, it's part of the government agency, but it's not as powerful as you say as compared to, for example, you know, Ministry of Education or other more powerful ministry, Ministry of Finance, for example. But they have been pushing uh, things on the legal front. For example, the, the anti-domestic violence law was primarily pushed by the Women's Federation. But again, a lot of the you know, newer trends that we observe uh, happened really at a grassroots level rather than the Women's Federation, which is a top-down organization. And I guess there we just see a lot of energizing young actors who really observe what's going on in the world and they are strategizing and they are you know, mobilizing, borrowing from international experiences. So there I just see a lot of energy. I don't think it's as organized, uh, but it's definitely gaining momentum. So now turning our attention then, now that we've discussed some of the broader historical and contemporary contexts, to underrepresented outperformers. And this article highlights the finding that female legislators, while holding a disproportionately small number of seats in the NPC, about 20%, are comparatively more productive than their male counterparts in sponsoring legislative bills, as well as developing cohesion or collaboration. The article describes three factors that would be helpful to discuss this more closely, the first of which is collaboration. So how does collaboration matter in China's legislative process, and why are women more collaborative than men in the NPC? 
Right. Yes. First of all, I would like to thank you, Richard, for reading uh, our paper so closely. And you're exactly right that we argue that uh, collaboration matters greatly in the Chinese Congress, both mechanically and organically. First of all, mechanically speaking, for a proposed bill to be considered by the MPC, it requires at least 30 signatures from deputies, usually from the same province or the delegation of the sponsor. And the signature collection process is when coalition building is taking place. And the second kind of collaboration, uh, which I think is more organic, usually happens cross province. For, for instance, uh, if Richard, you're from the Beijing delegation and I am from the Shanghai delegation and we are proposing a bill together on anti-domestic violence law, we each collected 30 signatures from our own delegation, but now we are joining forces to make it a bigger bill. And this type of inter-delegation, inter-provincial coalition building is very important because it requires broader support from different regional and bureaucratic interests. The size of the signature pool also sends a stronger signal to the MPC leadership and the party leadership that this is an important issue. So we are looking at this kind of uh, collaboration in the paper. Well, we cannot fully answer the question of why women are more collaborative than men, but we explore a few possibilities. One possibility is that women are more likely to discuss issues with and find allies in other women, especially during MPC plenary meetings uh, that happens annually, where everyone meets in Beijing for two weeks with very intensive interactions. And I want to bring up the example of Congresswoman Zhao Yongqiu, who served two terms in the MPC, now retired, and wrote a book about her experience. Uh, this is very rare, I want to say, for politicians in China who write about their experiences, so we don't have many of those memoirs to, to draw from. But she did mention that uh, she did mention how women colleagues in her delegation woke up early together. You know, they all stay in the same hotel to get dressed for the big days how they visited each other's hotel room at night to continue discussion, and uh, they celebrated International Women's Day together, uh, which, uh, which is March 8th every year, which happened to be the same time when they meet together for a plenary sessions. So those are very interesting to, to read about. And those founding experiences sometimes translate into policy collaboration. Um, but I should also say that women not only collaborate with other women, they also collaborate with men at a higher rate. So the second factor that the article highlights that affects women's participation in the MPC is the double quota effect of institutionalizing a quota for female legislators and a quota for non-CCP legislators. Could you explain what is this double quota effect and how it has made an impact on the types of bills or discourse that are produced and passed? Right. So what's unique about China's legislature is that it has many quotas. Besides the gender quota that um, that is was set about at 22% for the 12th MPC, uh, the MPC also features, um, for example, a quota on the percentage of democratic satellite parties that we just talked about. Um, also including legislators who have no party affiliation. So they, they together need to fulfill a certain percentage of seats. Because those quotas are not exclusive, a female legislator who comes from one of the satellite parties or has no party affiliation uh, could fulfill two quotas simultaneously. Uh, in other words, those women are tasked was carrying both gender diversity and party diversity, so multiple dimensions of diversity. Um, 
tasks. And our research finds that these women are more active than women from the CCP, mostly because they do not have to comply with their party's direction as strictly as Communist Party members. And this non-party excuse me, this non-CCP legislators are also more likely to bypass the influence of local government and local CCP directions. Does this group produce certain types of bills? Um, We find that overall women are very well balanced in their interests. They not only care about gendered issues such as marriage, sexual violence, sexual harassment, children, but they're also more active in the economic and finance issues, rural affairs, etc. And as we discussed before, a lot of those satellite party members, they're highly educated and uh, they they work in the education sector. So many of the non-CCP delegates focus on issues related to education. And earlier, you were mentioning in in the motivational example, talking to the part-time legislator that you met with, uh, mentioned that she's a part-time legislator, an entrepreneur by trade. Uh, what do you see are various uh, industries or sectors that uh, might encompass more women legislators than other industries? Uh, for example, I think the People's Liberation Army has representation itself in the NPC. So is uh, defense, security or education or private enterprise uh, particularly strong or well-balanced with female participation? Right. So PLA is a good example of um less gender, less female representation. So I think they have the smallest number of women. I need to go back to check the exact numbers. And individuals from the government sector and party leadership position, I think they are primarily men. That's because a lot of the top leadership positions are taken by men in the government and in the party. So where we do see more female representation are sectors such as, um, so we broadly call them um, public uh, organization sector, but that's a very big category or mass organization uh, sector that includes, uh, you know, hospitals, schools, and NGOs. And in Chinese, there's a very unique term called Danwei. So those institutions are sort of affiliated with the state, but employees from those organizations are not state employees. Uh, so we combine all those people together and uh, call, call, call those group a uh, mass organization group. And uh, that's really where you do see a lot of female uh, legislators coming from. In the private sector, I also want to say, um, you know, China does send a lot of uh, legislators or choose a lot of legislators from the business sector. And uh, there, I think we see a fair representation of women, but, you know, a lot of the CEOs, a lot of the uh, business managers are men. So there we do not, uh, I think there, that's a, that's an area where we, we should, uh, I can hope to see more female leaders in the future. The, third factor uh, presented in the article that contributes to female legislative productivity is female leadership. Uh, How has the development and presence of female leaders affected participation in the NPC? And how do you see female leadership growing either within the NPC or perhaps some of these other industries you mentioned, like the private sector? And how can that influence uh, the legislature in China? We indeed find that when a legislation or a provincial delegation has uh, a female leader, female legislators from the same delegation are more likely to become a bill sponsor. 
going back to Congresswoman Zhao's memoir that we just talked about, she did mention a role model effect. That was when she was working closely with a national female politician uh, whose name is Wu Yi. She was vice premier at the time. So Premier Wu came to her delegation and worked with her for two weeks. And she was talking about how, how encouraged she was by the presence of such a strong and vocal female leader. But that said, there are very few female leaders in the MPC. Among the nine or ten congressional committees there, only two were chaired by a woman. And in all delegations, all provincial delegations, including the PLA delegation, only 10 or 11 percent of leadership positions were taken by women. So on the leadership, female leadership front in the NPC, there is a long way to go. In the business sector, there's, you know, there's still a long way to, it's also a long way to go. The, now, this disproportionate productivity among female legislators, this outperformance, is it unique to the NPC in China, or do you see these factors you mentioned present in other legislative contexts around the world? Right. So I would say that this finding is not uniquely Chinese. According to, for example, two American politics scholars uh, in the U.S. House of Representatives, on average, women sponsored about three more bills per Congress than men during the period of 1984 and 2004. Uh, in the Mexican Mexican case, there was a 2013 study where two scholars find that in the Mexican's Chamber of Deputies, women on average sponsored about 1.6 more bills than men. And in many studies in economics and political science, scholars have found a positive effect of gender quotas on female representation and candidate quality. But that's not universally the case. For example, in countries like Jordan, gender quotas uh, did increase women's representation, but not the substantive representation and political power. I guess another interesting comparison to have is to, to look at star politicians. And in the U.S. right now, uh, women constitute about 27% of all representatives in the House of Representatives. And not only uh, do you guys have a powerful female speaker of the House, they're also quite a few other high-profile female legislators such as AOC, Ihan Omar, etc. I guess we're all waiting for China's Nancy Pelosi or AOC to show up in the MPC. And a, a brief question, too, about the administrative side of a governance in China. While this conversation focuses on the NPC and female participation in, in legislative bodies, uh, do you see that there's any impact or trends with regards to how policies are implemented and whether uh, female par participation in the administrative capacity of China is changing? Or is it largely separated that maybe female participation might be more robust in the NPC than it is on the administrative side of rolling out policies? Yeah, I think you're right. The represent, female representation on the NPC on the legislative side is stronger on the administrative side. Uh, because going back to the number on the provincial leadership, uh, both in the government and in the party, female uh, representation was about 10%. So how does that translate to policy implementation and you know different policies at subnational level? Uh, I have a colleague who's working on the paper that actually looks at uh, risk risk preferences between male and female politicians. So 
her initial finding, I think, is that uh, women are slightly more risk averse than men. So when they implement you know, policies, they're less aggressive. For example, in the land uh, acquisition area, women will be perhaps more considerate in land taking practices um, and perhaps more likely to, to be more, uh, to be more, I guess, um, supportive of uh, individuals whose lands are taken. So that paper, I think, is still a working paper, but uh, I'm really looking forward to, to see what her, what her finding is. And another, I think another project that I have, uh, I've talked to my colleague about is to talk to look at the drinking culture in in the Chinese governments. I think it's it has gone a lot better after Xi Jinping's anti-corruption campaign. You know, before 2013, when you perhaps went to a dinner banquet, you do see a lot of drinking between you know among between government officials and uh, you know entrepreneurs who are invited to those parties. But you know now you're looking at alcohol sales. Uh, they have gone down quite dramatically since 2013, and uh, you know perhaps that environment would also make female politicians, female you know public. I guess civil servants to be more likely to to enjoy those conversations to actually talk more about policies. Yeah, and I actually wonder too how these behaviors or responses to these behaviors also affect women's participation in the NPC, such as building collaboration. That kind of strikes to me as if there's uh, changes in how connections can be made or meetings in or outside of committee can be processed between different members. I feel like perhaps the gender lenses can also inform how those connections are made. Yeah, definitely. You know, informal culture matters a lot. And uh, again, we do not have too many qualitative evidences to draw from. But according to that memoir we read, women like to, you know, talk about policy issues in the hotel room where they can feel cozy and at ease, whereas perhaps those, uh, you know, they're male colleagues are just drinking in the lobby or, you know, in, at a restaurant, you probably would imagine different conversations are are going on. But going back to the data, there are a lot of, uh, you know, female-male collaboration going on. So I think more work needs to be done to really understand uh, what's going on behind those collaborations. So looking towards the present and future, uh, what would you identify as the most significant challenge or challenges to women's participation in politics and decision-making in China? And what do you see are ways that individuals, mass organizations, or even governmental bodies are addressing these challenges? Yeah. So I guess so far I have been pretty positive to look at, you know, positive changes in politics and in the society. But I have to say that the biggest challenge is patriarchy. But the good news is that people are fighting patriarchy everywhere, and women and their allies in China are learning from international experiences in the U.S., in Japan, in the Nordic countries, etc. A more specific challenge, I guess, is that many women do not wish to be in politics nowadays. I think we just touched upon it. Uh, it is a taxing job, long hours, little pay, you know, a lot of social events, and it is so male-dominant. Um, when I think about myself, I don't have any female friend who works in the government or who wish to be in politics in China. Uh, I'm sure political leaders in China also realize that women are productive in legislative performances and they're probably they're productive too in other public and administrative positions. 
So I would say that uh, you know leaders in China should try really try to incentivize women women to think about a job or to really start a job in politics. Uh, perhaps they should also try hard to find uh, you know a Chinese AOC or a Chinese star so that young women and girls will be inspired and want to be in politics. That would definitely be a very positive and encouraging development. For scholars, students, and educators interested in the topic of female participation in politics in China, or female participation in politics globally, uh, what might be resources that you'd recommend for further study? Yeah, I do have a lot of recommendations, so perhaps I should uh, just.、Uh... Stick with China. So, on our earlier conversation, we mentioned women's federations. So, I would like to recommend one book. You know, the earlier waves of feminist movement and state-led feminist movement in China. I really enjoyed this book、uh, by Professor Zheng Wang from University of Michigan.、Uh, so, the book title is "Finding Women in the State: A Socialist Female Feminist Revolution in the PRC."、Uh, from 1949 to 1964. So, I think that gives、uh, readers a good historical. Background of of the the scene, and on the contemporary period, a few sociologists are doing very great work on women in China. I would like to recommend、uh, Professor Yun Zhou from Michigan and Qian Yue from UBC.、Uh, I think I'll send you、uh, the notes、uh, through the transcript. And in the news media, I enjoy、uh, works by Amy Ching from the New York Times. She has written quite a few interesting pieces about women's experience、uh, in the present day China, and I think I'll. And my recommendation with a podcast on a podcast.、Uh, so this podcast、uh, is in Chinese. It's called Hai Ma Xingqiu, and in English, it's called Seahorse Planet. And the host is a, this、uh, badass Chinese feminist who now lives in Germany, and she interviews you know a lot of female female leaders in different、uh, different industries. And I really enjoy、uh, listening to to those female voices. Well, Professor Ho, thank you so much for such a rich and thought-provoking discussion. I look forward to studying and tracking this issue more closely、uh, with your work as well as those、uh, that you recommended. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Richard. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for listening in to our podcast episode. For more information about this episode and all our other episodes, be sure to check out our website at nrc.elliot.gwu.edu and subscribe to our email list to get the latest on upcoming episodes. If you have a recommendation on a topic or expert to interview for a future podcast episode, please send us your ideas via email to gweanrc@gwu.edu. Lastly, we'd like to thank our sponsors for all their support in making this podcast happen. But most importantly, we want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in. Until next time.